It is really good to be here at the Cookville Church of Christ tonight. Uh, this is the first chance I've had to be in your building, and I am excited for you, thankful that you all are able to get through this transition period and now be able to settle in. I know that's what you're looking forward to as well. I do want to mention tonight that a uh, couple is here that are getting ready to make their plans to attend the Memphis School of Preaching in November. And that is Jordan Bohannon and Chloe Mormon. Uh, they're going to get married later this year and then start school in November. Jordan is from the Willette congregation nearby. And uh, he has come to foundation several years. And so we have quite a connection and friendship because of that. I'm glad they're here tonight. Would you keep them in your prayers as they begin this journey? It is a wonderful adventure, but it is still an adventure that is challenging and we know that prayer would be a good thing for them. So please keep them in your prayer, prayers as they make that journey together later this year. It is amazing to think about the statement, the wisest fool to have ever lived. But truly Solomon matches that description. And it didn't start off and end that way with his life. That wasn't his destiny from the very beginning. In fact, as we begin tonight, I want to take your attention to the book of 2 Chronicles chapter 1. I want us to talk about when Solomon did well first, and then I want to point out what went wrong and when it went wrong, and why. In the beginning, when we find Solomon, Solomon's been established as a king, and the first time we really see him in action, we're told in 2 Chronicles 1 and verse 1 that God had exalted him exceedingly and was with him. So this is a man that from the very beginning of us reading this portion of Scripture, he's not a godless man. He's not a fool just yet. He's a God-fearing man. And the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord, the idea of loving God first, putting God first. And Solomon truly had done just that at this point in his life. When you and I study 2 Chronicles chapter 1, the Bible tells me that Solomon speaks in verse 2 to all of the people involved and they take them up in verse 3 to a high place at Gibeon. I know sometimes when we talk about the high places, they're usually designated for idolatrous worship. But evidently, according to this, it wasn't always the case that a high place would be used for idolatry. If you think tonight we're somewhat set up on a high place, if you will, this would be the high place at Cookville for the members of the Cookville Church of Christ to assemble together, study and worship and praise God. And that's what they're going to do at Gibeon, a designated place of worship, a place that was designed so that they could go together, assemble and worship the Lord. And what ends up happening here is that David had brought up the ark of God from Kirjath-Jerim to the place David had prepared for it, and he'd pitched a tent for it at Jerusalem. And this bronze altar is here before the tabernacle of the Lord. Solomon and the assembly sought him there, and then Solomon goes up to this bronze altar before the Lord, which was at the tabernacle of meeting, and offered a thousand burnt offerings on it. Now, if I said tonight, my first of a thousand points is, you would probably say, okay, after three, let's all leave, and when we come back, he'll still be preaching, so we can know that we've got some buffer time. Count to a thousand. How long will you get before you want to quit? Do anything a thousand times on purpose, intentionally, and in a row, and you don't want to do it. And there's a statement here 
that should be made to all of us today about the dedication that is used by Solomon to offer a thousand burnt offerings, the time and the effort that would take place in doing this, a thousand burnt offerings. And it's that night, that night after Solomon had done all of this, he's probably exhausted, probably wanting to get some sleep, that God appears to him in verse 7 and says, Solomon asks, what do you want? And I'll give it to you. What would you ask for? What would the first thought come to mind? Would it be for financial relief? Maybe you have bills and you're worried about making ends meet. Would it be for your health to be restored to the way it once was? Would it be for you to maybe have your family intact again, together, serving God? All of those are legitimate and understandable asks that we might make. Solomon asks for this peculiar thing compared to what he could have asked for, and that was for wisdom. I want you to notice in verse 8 how Solomon, in the beginning of his kingdom, his kinghood, his kingship, excuse me, he's got the right mentality about what his role is. God, you have shown great mercy to David, my father, and you've made me king in his place. We remember the idea of Daniel when Daniel talks about King Nebuchadnezzar was walking around and looking at his great kingdom and he said, look at all this that I have done. And God said, um, wait just a minute. You didn't do any of this. I gave it to you. And so I'll drive you out like a beast of the field until you know that God rules in the kingdoms of men. And when you figure that out, you can come back. Solomon already understood that. Solomon understood, I'm not king because I'm the greatest that is in existence. I'm not king because there is no one that could serve in my place. I'm king because God put me here. And you and I have been placed on this earth with a purpose to go and tell others about God. The New Testament teaches that in Matthew 28, 18 through 20. And Solomon Long before the New Testament command of going into all the world and preaching the gospel, Solomon's main goal was, God, how can I serve your people properly? How can I serve them the best way? So give me wisdom and knowledge. It is incredible to talk to a child and to see how much knowledge that they may possess but rarely do they show wisdom when they show the knowledge that they have. Uh, we were in the airport, and Adam was just about three years old, and somebody walked by speaking in another language, and Adam looked at me and said, that's a weirdo call. Well, that guy looked at me like I had insulted him on purpose, and I tried to explain to Adam, people speak more than just English in this world, and that individual was having a conversation in another language. Well, he had knowledge. He knew that that language sounded weird to him. He'd never heard it before. But he really didn't use any wisdom when he talked about what he had experienced in that moment. Children are so quick to do just that. They speak before they think. Solomon says, Lord, even as an adult, I want to have the wisdom and knowledge combined to be able to do what's right. And I need to tell you that Solomon was not just granted this request, but he was also given the opportunity to have other things given to him as well, such as the riches, wealth beyond measure. And at one point, what we're told in verse 12, 
there was one king that lived on this earth, an earthly king that is, not Jesus himself, but there was an earthly king among the Israelite kingdoms that was the greatest king that had ever been in existence. Watch verse 12. Wisdom and knowledge I grant to you, yes, but I'm going to also give you riches and wealth and honor, such as none of the kings who have had were, who were before you, nor shall any after you have the like. We spend so much time talking about, in the sporting world, the, the greatest of all time. And if I were to ask you who the greatest of all time was in basketball or football or baseball, if you love that sport, you'll have an answer. And the beautiful thing about sports is our answers will probably be different if we spend enough time talking to each other. Solomon was the greatest king that had ever lived. And he possessed wealth and riches and honor beyond measure from anyone who had been before him or those who would follow him. And as you and I think about that, the, the subject of our summer series, when heroes falter, how, how could that be the case? How can a man like this, that's been blessed with the wisdom from God, be completely in a situation later in his life where he would be deemed as a failure in one point of his life, where he would make a decision that would separate him from the great state that he's in. Because the Bible tells me in multiple places throughout Second Chronicles chapter 1, verses 11 through 12, and even through verse 17, that Solomon was actually a very good king, that people were kind of afraid of him. And it needs to be stated, when God's people served God, when they loved God, when they had a king that desired to serve God as well and expected that of the subjects, Israel was the greatest world power this world has ever seen. They were unbeatable. No one could come close to them. And so Solomon has been given the wisdom, the knowledge. You want to talk about stacking the deck. So what happens? Love, but of the wrong things. Love can be a great thing, but it can also tear you apart. Love can change your life and make your life better, and it can make it worse. Solomon got to a point where he no longer loved God first. And we're going to talk about that with the time that we have tonight, but I need it to be stated first and foremost just how far Solomon will fall. Because again, you, you can't help but think if this was the place where you picked up your Bible and read in Second Chronicles 1, how could he have fallen? If you continue on to Second Chronicles 9, 13-28, when the Queen of Sheba shows up and Solomon's able to explain God to her, explain and give her the opportunity of a knowledge of God. What, how is this going to happen? This man seems like he's too good. How could this be the case? Love. Of the wrong things. And the sad thing is, the devil knows what you and I could love improperly. The love of money is the root of all evil. 
doesn't say the possession of money. It doesn't say that a wealthy man is sinful, but the love of money. There are people in this world that, in the pursuit of the love of money, destroy their families, destroy themselves, and everyone else around them. The statement's been made before, money doesn't make you a better person, it just reveals more of who you already were. And the best example of that are the athletes who get money, these massive million-dollar contracts, millions upon millions, and some of them do what with that money? They waste it. Some of them, they don't budget their money properly and they end up in a position where they're bankrupt. They're spending like crazy. There have been some cases even of as they become more famous and more wealthy, using that money foolishly but also inappropriately. Ending up in prison in some cases for things that they've done that they use their money in part to accomplish. Love of money can be the root of all evil. And the devil knows that for some people that's exactly how he'll get us. But that's not how he attacked Solomon. And truly, that could have been an avenue with the amount of wealth that Solomon had. I mean, you would think that would have been an easy thing for the devil to say. Let's get him with the wealth. That wasn't the route that the devil selected to tempt this individual. He chose the love of women. As a little boy, I couldn't really fathom the idea of someone having over a thousand total women that he had to take care of and have a relationship with. It just made no sense. In just a few weeks, we'll be at Polishing the Pulpit, many of us, and there'll be thousands of people there. Could you imagine taking 1,000 people, putting them off in one section, and then saying, this is the amount of people that Solomon had. This is the amount of women that Solomon had. How can you fathom that? I know the Bible tells us in the Old Testament that polygamy was somewhat of a thing that happened, and it, it was somewhat common, unfortunately, even. It's not a, approved of by God, but it was a common occurrence. But I don't read of people like Solomon on a regular basis having that many wives. I want you to think about what your marriage has done for your own life. How has it improved you? I want you to think about, as we have some I know here tonight that are getting ready to get married, what you expect marriage to accomplish in your life. Because there's a pattern set forth in the Old Testament, and that same pattern is carried through into the New Testament too, that a man... And a woman will leave father and mother, cleave to each other, become one flesh, their husband and wife. That is intended to be forever. They are one. But we've never had the Lord say, the husband take a thousand women and cleave to them and they shall be one flesh. That doesn't work. I want you to take your Bibles now. And I want you to notice 1 Kings chapter 11 because this is where the majority of our time needs to really be spent and what we discuss because it reveals what happened to Solomon at one point in his life. What takes place that would put him in a position to be considered the wisest fool, a lover of this present world. 
In 1 Kings 11 and verse 1, the Bible says, But King Solomon loved many foreign women, as well as the daughter of Pharaoh, women of the Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites. Foreign women. Some translations say strange. When we talk about the idea of foreign women, and we're talking about Solomon loving foreign women and that being a bad thing, we're not talking just about the idea of interracial marriage. That's not what God is talking about here. If someone loves the Lord and they're going to love their spouse, it doesn't matter what color they are. It doesn't matter their national and ethnic background. It doesn't matter the nationality. If you're going to love your spouse and love the Lord, you can get married. There's nothing sinful about that, but here's the problem. Verse 2 tells us why there was a ban on the Israelite people from these women. It had nothing to do with just their ethnicity. It had everything to do with this. From the nations of whom the Lord had said to the children, Don't intermarry with them, nor they with you. Why? Surely they will turn away your hearts after their gods. And Solomon clung to these in love. When the Lord says, surely this is going to happen, wouldn't we be wise to listen? I remember when I was in local work, we didn't have Adam just yet. I believe Megan was pregnant with Adam, but the other minister that I worked with, he had two children that were somewhat small, and one of them, she was two years old, and we'd gone out to eat one night somewhere, and she was standing on the back of her chair at the restaurant, and not balancing very well, and the natural occurrence took place where she fell. And I remember thinking, okay, I'm going to get some incredible wisdom from this father on how to handle a situation like that. And my co-minister looked at his daughter and said, yep, natural consequences, and he went back to eating. I was shocked. I was thinking, that's, that's the wisdom? I was expecting, you know, a scoop up and a, are you okay? Is everything okay? Well, he's telling her what? You do that, that's what happens. If you're going to stand on the back of your chair, you need to understand that you will fall potentially. And if you fall, it's going to hurt. And that's what naturally can happen. You fall off your chair and hit yourself on the ground. It doesn't feel great. God says in this case, you go after strange women, surely... Without a doubt, surely they will turn your hearts away, so don't even entertain it. The idea of sacrificing oneself for the love of God. Solomon was unwilling to do that. He loved foreign women, idolatrous women. He clung to these in love. Some have even suggested that Perhaps those clung to those in love was not just a statement about the women that he loved, but also the fact that for a time it would seem Solomon became idolatrous himself, or at least condoned of idolatrous practice, and loved the gods of his strange women. We're told in the next verse here, for it was so when... So, or excuse me, verse, next verse is verse 3. He had 700 wives, princesses, 300 concubines... And watch this. And his wives turned away his heart. Brethren, does God know what's best? Does He know how the human brain, the human mind, and the human being itself will operate 
Yes. And if God says don't do something, it's because He knows what will happen. God wasn't just sitting in heaven and saying, well, it's kind of dry down there. We need to come up with some commandments to make it a little bit easier for me to be oppressive. The message of the Bible has always been about us loving God more than ourselves. Because we're not able to do that inherently. Man is not perfect. Man doesn't know how to be a perfect individual. We're, we're, we're bad people. Not born, but we become bad as sin becomes something that is tempting to us and we succumb to that temptation. There's only been one man that we know that lived on this entire earth from birth to death, was tempted in all points as man was tempted, yet without sin. That was Jesus Christ. And so I know that I'm not a perfect person. And that's why Jesus had to die for me. Same with you. Same with all of us in this community, in this state, in this country, in this world. We were all in need of redemption. But when the Redeemer tells me what to do and how to live, wouldn't it be wise for me to listen? Wouldn't it make sense for me to be able to say in that moment, well, God, you're the only one that knows, so I'm going to do what you say. But I can tell you shamefully even on my own behalf, and I'm sure you could say the same. There have been times when I knew what was right, but I still did what was wrong. I gave in to my own selfish desires. I became God in that moment. I'm going to serve myself, do what's best for me, and God will get back to you in just a moment. That's what Solomon did. He served himself. He turned the wisdom off willingly. You cannot tell me that Solomon could be the wisest person on the face of the earth, but in this one area, his wisdom wasn't fully you know, charged. Solomon knew this was wrong and still did it. He chose willingly to sin, even with all the wisdom and knowledge he possessed from God. He made the determination to sin. And verse 4 tells me it was so when Solomon was old that his wives turned his heart after other gods and his heart was not loyal to the Lord his God as was the heart of his father David. Do you know how sad it is when we study the life of David? David did some messed up stuff. He murdered a man in cold blood because he didn't want to bear the consequences of it being found out that he had a child with his wife. He sent that man to his death seemingly without a second thought. And it wasn't until Nathan the prophet came and told him a story where David became so enraged by what had been done to this individual. Tell me who did this. Let's go get him. David, it's you. You did it. David was so calloused in that moment because of what had happened with Bathsheba. He murdered a man. He wasn't the exact one that dealt the death blow to Uriah the Hittite, but that death blow definitely came because of David's instructions. And David also had sins in his life that we don't necessarily seemingly hit on as often, but David was instructed once not to number the people and did it anyway, and a massive punishment came upon the Israelite people and David as a result of that. And yet what we're told here is that 
Though David made mistakes, David's heart was loyal to God, meaning you can make mistakes and change your life and be loyal to the Lord. And the blessing that we see in David's life is that David didn't allow that moment of Uriah the Hittite dying to become the rest of his story. He didn't become this cold and calloused king who did whatever he saw fit. He allowed himself to be pricked by the message of God's prophet. But we're told by this, Solomon went beyond that. At this point in his life, Solomon seems to be someone who would say, God who? And imagine that. All that has been given to him by God. And he willingly walks away from it. For who? Himself. It is, again, incredible the parallel of a child to what Solomon's doing because we had gone somewhere on vacation and on vacation we decided to splurge a little bit and we bought my son some toys and we got to the place where we were staying and that night he said, hey, where are we going tomorrow to buy more toys? I said, uh, nowhere. <laughs> what you got was what you got. And he started to have a little, you know, five-year-old pouting spree about that and acted like we didn't love him because if we loved him, we'd buy him a toy every day. And if I want it, I need to have it. And we're trying to train him that you don't always get what you want every single day. There's days where you can be blessed and we can splurge, but we can't do that every day. And he looked at us and he gave us the meanest look. And he didn't say it, but the look kind of implied it. He wasn't really big fans of us that night. And so I just sat next to him and I said, Hey, who buys your clothes? And he says, You and Mama. And who feeds you? You do. And who takes care of you if you get sick? And all these different things we go down. And I said, Are you really going to say that the only way we show our love for you is by the toys we buy you? And he wasn't happy about it, but he knew we were right. And he said, no, sir. And I gave him a hug and said, now go to sleep. What does Solomon sound like right now? He sounds like a child. Well, if I want it, I'm going to do it. And I don't care if there's a higher standard. I don't care if a higher authority is telling me no. I want to do it, and so I'm going to do it. There are actually people in the denominational world that teach this. And it really stems to the once saved, always saved doctrine of people saying, I can do whatever I want, whenever I want, because the flesh is too powerful. It overcomes the good spirit that I have within me, but because God knows that about my flesh, He just doesn't hold me accountable to that. Where in the Bible... In the Old Testament, do you ever find that being done where God said to Adam and Eve, I, I know your flesh was so powerful and it overcame you and you ate that fruit. I'm going to give you a pass just this once. It's always been about the battle of will within us first. Where when I am tempted to do something that's wrong, I say no. And the best example of this is Joseph. In this case at least, a man who had been absolutely mistreated, left and right. 
And if there had ever been a young man who could say, where is God right now? Joseph could have said that about his life. God let me be sold into slavery. God let me be put in a pit. And my brothers, I was worried they were going to kill me. And Potiphar's wife comes calling. And Joseph still says no. Why? Joseph says, how can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And we told our children, told our son recently, we want you to do what's right, not because you're scared of the punishment, but because you love mama and daddy so much that you can't bear the thought of hurting us and that you don't want to do something that hurts us. That's God's way too. God wants me not to be so scared of hell that I won't sin, but to love him so much that I won't sin, to love him more than I love myself. If I love God that way, I won't have to worry about the punishment of hell. Now, yes, the punishment of hell should be a sobering thought that makes me do what's right because I don't want to go that way. But I must reach a point in my walk with Christ where the love is so strong that when temptation comes calling, I say, not a chance. No way. I don't want that. Watch how far this goes with Solomon. In verse number 5, Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. And it's, it's incredible that this next verse is even recorded in Scripture. You would think when we study 2 Chronicles 1, there's no way this would happen, but verse 6, And Solomon did evil in the sight of the Lord, and did not fully follow the Lord as did his father David. Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, on the hill that is east of Jerusalem, and for Molech, the abomination of the people of Ammon. In 1 Kings chapter 3, verses 16 through 28, a mother went to sleep, and in the process of the night, she rolled over on her child, and the child suffocated, died. It's a tragedy. But then that mother got up with that child and walked over to another mother with her baby and swapped them. Now it's less tragic and more sadistic about what a mother would do like that. How could you do that to another mother? This mother that had been baby swapped wakes up the next day thinking that she had killed her child, but upon further inspection, oh, no, no, no. That's not my child. It doesn't, it doesn't match the characteristics and the look that my child has. It doesn't look like my child. It's not my child. They go before King Solomon, and Solomon says, Okay, here's what we're going to do. Fetch me a sword. I'll cut this baby in half. We'll give half to you, half to you. Everybody goes home happy, right? I remember being a little boy and thinking, My dad made that up. I thought, There is no way that that's in the Bible. And sure enough, that's exactly what Solomon said. Why? Solomon knew that the mother, the real mother, would rather that child live than to watch it perish. And sure enough, the real baby's mother said, she can keep the baby, I don't need it. The other mother was fine with the plan. Yeah, let's go ahead, let's do this. Solomon knew who the real mother was and said, give the child back to her. 
protecting that little one from being raised by someone who wasn't his mother, who would have been kidnapped, protecting that child and preserving it. Here we are eight chapters later, and he's building a place of worship for children to be slaughtered. You tell me that love won't make you do some crazy and messed up things. Because this was a God of one of his women. And so he built a high place for Molech. The renderings that I've seen have Molech as a statue with his hands outstretched. And that child would be placed in those hands and it would pass through the fire. Sacrificed to Molech. You know how sickening it is to really stop and think about a man saying, let's build a high place for a God when sacrifice takes place that will require children to die. For what? Why? This is how far he's gone. We're not just talking about Solomon as a man who loved his wife more and he was tolerant of them worshiping gods, but he would put his foot down when it got too far. No, he's building places of worship for them. What do you do when you worship? In this time period, you're going to sacrifice. I don't know how many. I don't know what happened. I haven't found a verse that tells me. Maybe there is one, maybe there isn't, but... How many children died because of this? How many children did Solomon willingly let be sacrificed because he loved these strange women more than God? We get infuriated and incensed in our country when we talk about the subject of abortion as we should. As we should. This is worship that they're talking about. Where's the fury from Solomon? Verse 8, it says, He did likewise for all his foreign wives who burned incense and sacrificed to their gods. Loved this present world. The New Testament teaches that neither married nor given in marriage in heaven... And as somber of a thought as that is, as someone who loves his wife, wants to be with his wife forever, I know that the day will come when one of us or both of us will no longer be on this earth and our marriage, according to what the New Testament teaches, it, it will be over as we know it. And so the importance is that I make sure I get to heaven the importance is she makes sure she gets to heaven and that neither one of us drag the other down and keep them from heaven. What's happening here? Not what should be happening. And Solomon was punished greatly for this. God told him that he was going to rip his kingdom away. He won't do it during his time, not because of all the good that Solomon had done, but for the sake of David, his father. He's going to give it to a servant, but he'll leave at least one person. He'll leave a remnant, so to speak. Again, not for the sake of you, Solomon, but for the sake of David, your father. But from that point forward, in verses 14 all the way to the end of this chapter, we're told, enemy after enemy rose up against Solomon including his own servant. 
For what? Was it worth it? You lost your kingdom. Your actions separated you from God to the point that God became so angry and incensed with you that He ripped the kingdom out of your hands. And the only reason it didn't happen in your lifetime was because of what your dad did. How wicked was Solomon? Lover of this present world. And as we think about very briefly some things that need to be stressed about this, let me make some modern day application from this Old Testament character. The first is this. I have heard young people say at teenage Christian camps and other places that, yes, I'm in a relationship that is clearly not good for me, but I know how to handle them. Or I know what to do. I can take care of them. I'm smart enough to answer the skeptical questions they're going to bring forth. Are you smarter than Solomon? Am I? No. And so what do I need to be aware of? I need to be aware when I'm picking a mate that this needs to be part of the conversation. Because it can destroy you. There have been success stories of people who have studied with their spouse and brought them to the truth. I understand that. I don't want to diminish that. But I also want to make sure to stress the importance of what can happen if we are flippant about this and act as if it is no big deal. There is the possibility for someone to turn someone else away from the truth. The wisest man outside of Christ, as Brother Tom mentioned, that ever lived, turned away from God because of his spouse situation. The second thing that we need to point out is this. Solomon knew what was right. But he still did this. And I got to thinking as I studied about Solomon and his life, I, I just started thinking about the fact that how often is it that we sin and are in the exact same boat that Solomon was in? We know what's right, but we do it anyway. The devil figures out what you like, and that's the greatest hits album he's going to play for you. He'll play the classics to try to make sure that he keeps you where he wants you. And you and I would have to be honest with ourselves. We don't have to go around the room and talk about it, but we have to be honest with ourselves that we do have something that is a difficulty for us to say no to. And he knows that. And for Solomon, it was all of these strange women. And as a result of that temptation coming to fruition, Solomon was building places of idolatrous worship. If I'm not careful... I will fall into the same category as Solomon saying, I know what's right, let me just turn it off right now though and do what's wrong because that's what I want to do. Shame. And shame and shame and shame on us when we do that. But we've all been there before where we know it's wrong and we do it anyway. We have to resolve not to be like that. The final thing before I let you go before our devotional 
is this. There are many people that are just like Solomon that are in this world right now who are wayward, wandering, just like Solomon was at this point in his life because of the decisions that they've made. And you and I know some of them. And what do we do? We need to try to go to them before it's too late. We need to go and find the lovers of this present world and plead with them. This world is not our home. It's passing away. It won't be here forever. But eternity will be. Would it really be worth it to lose your soul over the sake of your spouse? Would it really be worth it to lose your soul over the sake of your own selfish desires? How could it be? Let's not forget, before we were married or before we were looking for a spouse, we were sinners without hope that Christ died for. The Bible tells me that the New Testament church is the bride of Christ, meaning that for so many of us, the first relationship that we would ever enter into would be, as Christians, married to Christ as part of the church. And for those that are later in life, maybe you don't become a Christian until later, the most important relationship, once that happens, has to become to the church first, to Jesus first. Loving the Lord more than ourselves and our spouses and others. That old acronym joy, Jesus first, others second, yourself last. Love God more than this world. Thank you.